1972, Stanford psychologist Walter Michel conducted what has come to be called the marshmallow experiment. You heard of that? In this experiment, a child of four or five years old was brought into a room with a researcher, and a marshmallow was placed on the table in front of the child. And the child was told they could eat that marshmallow at any time, but if they waited until the researcher came back into the room, they could have two marshmallows. Well, you know how this experiment ends, don't you? Most of the children couldn't wait for the better thing that was coming. and They ate the marshmallow, often immediately, but a few waited for the better thing. I have some good news for us this morning. You want some good news? Something better is coming for us. Do you believe that? Jesus promises this. And so the question for all of us is how are we living in light of this promise of Jesus that something better is coming? What marshmallows of our culture are you attracted to? Which marshmallows do you have difficulty resisting? What do you believe that you must have or that you deserve to have? What marshmallows do you think your children must have? And what will you do to get them? What compromises will you be required to make? What debt will you have to incur as a family? And not just financial, but debt in that precious schedule of the few hours that we have allotted to us each day. And why do you think it'll be worth it? There's more to the marshmallow experiment. It didn't end with that one test on that one day. Researchers followed the participants for 40 years. The children who waited for the better thing ended up having higher SAT scores, lower levels of substance abuse, lower likelihood of obesity, better responses to stress, better social skills, and generally better scores in a range of other life measures. See, as believers in Christ, there is a right way for us to live in this world, a way that brings success. We must live like we believe that this world is not all there is, but that instead something better is coming. You will never regret living your life in this way, and you will never regret teaching your children to live their life in this way. So if you and I truly have a, a desire to t- change not only our own lives, but the culture around us, then we must believe, and we must live like we believe, that something better is coming. Toward that end, let's take out our Bibles and turn once again this week to the New Testament book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter. Hebrews chapter 11, and when you've found your place, let's stand together so that we might hear read the word of the living God. Beginning in verse 8, this is the word of the Lord. 
By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let's pray together. Lord, there is such good news in these verses before us. City, a homeland, a place where you are. We ask now, Lord, that you would use the truth of your word and the power of your word when it's accompanied by your spirit to bring change to our lives so that we might live them rightly here in this world and in great hope of what's to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. And be seated. If you've been here uh, recently, you know that this is the third Sunday that we have been in this passage. And I want us to make sure as we begin that we make the right connection between the Old Testament people of faith and between you and me. So if you'll skip down to the end of the verse and look quickly at chapter and look quickly at verse 39, we read there that all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let's not miss what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He switches from the third person that he's been using in this chapter, all the he's and she's and them's and they's. And he concludes this chapter with first person, with us. And so he's connecting us with them. And so you and I, as we read chapter 11 of Hebrews, this this Christian or this uh, hall of faith, that we are one with these people and not other than these heroes of faith. See, our tendency, at least my tendency, is to believe that they are somehow of a different substance. Oh, those people are of a different essence than we are. They're made of something different. And we often employ that way of thinking as a means of excusing ourselves when our lives don't compare well to theirs. Well, they heard from God. They were different. That is true. 
They were different, but they also were not complete. Peter tells us in his first letter, chapter 1, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. See, Scripture is clear. These people of faith were not complete without us because we have Christ. God may have spoken to them, but earlier in Hebrews, the, the author reminds us that in these last days, God has spoken to us through His Son. Until Christ came, they were not perfect. They were not complete. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the author and com- completer or perfecter of our faith. And so because Christ has come, we are complete We have all we need. Therefore, we are without excuse. We must not marvel at their faith as if it's unattainable by us. They were human beings, just like we are, who responded to life, this life, with faith in God. When they feared, and they did fear, they returned to faith. When they failed, and they did fail, and sometimes spectacularly, they returned to faith. By faith, they were able to speak truths that sounded ridiculous to their culture. By faith, they were able to live in a way that looked ridiculous to their culture. By faith, they were able to make decisions that seemed ridiculous to their culture. This verse in Hebrews makes us one with these people by faith. For us, they should not be the exception to the rule because we have Christ and His Holy Spirit. So we, like they, even better than they, must relate to our culture by faith. In the last couple of weeks, we've been discussing what faith requires of us. As we seek to live as believers in Christ, as we seek to implement our vision of becoming community in Christ in this culture, and we've looked at two steps that we need to take, and step one was this. We have to admit or acknowledge that we are aliens, strangers here on this earth. Jesus said, that is who I am. Jesus said, that is who you are. And because Jesus said it, we will never and we should never really fit in on this earth. It requires faith to make this admission because it's counterintuitive to us. It's the very opposite of what we most desire, and that is acceptance. It is to to fit in. It's to be normal and not to be foreign. I was having lunch yesterday with a very elegant a very proper 91-year-old lady. 
And she was not happy with her sandwich the way it had been constructed. Her main concern was that the chef had not removed the spine from her lettuce. And so she deconstructed her entire sandwich. She removed the spine from the lettuce, and then she said, Oh, well, you know the chef here is a foreigner. And she didn't say it unkindly. She just said it very matter-of-factly, as if that's the explanation for everything that isn't right in this world. But that's the burden the foreigner has to bear, isn't it? The foreigner is the person on whom you can fix the blame. The foreigner is not seen for who they are, but from where they're from. And so it will be for us. Jesus says in the upper room, not once, but three times, not of this world, not of this world. You do not belong to this world. And so from now on, you and I, because of Jesus, are not seen for who we are, but from where we are from. And we are from, born of the Spirit of God. And so we'll be looked at differently by our culture as foreigners. We'll be blamed, criticized, ostracized. And who knows what the days ahead hold for people who continue to hold to the exclusivity of the gospel. That there is salvation found in no other name under heaven but the name of Jesus Christ. So it's not an easy step. Only faith allows us to move our feet forward for this one. The second step at which we looked last week is that we have to view this world as temporary. We don't look at our purpose here on earth as being gatherers or hoarders. Instead, we view our time on earth as a time to be givers. Jesus said to his disciples, freely you have received, freely give. We are givers, not gatherers. We're not here long enough to spend so much time accumulating. Will you forgive another story, my little cute stories from this week? This one happened on Friday. Kathy ended up going to this beautiful 300 square foot home of a couple who are 90 and 93 years old and they're downsizing to one bedroom and one living room and a kitchenette. And so every single room of their stunning furniture and their unbelievable collections, they have to be sold or given away. And isn't that what it comes down to for every one of us? I'm not suggesting that we should not enjoy the things uh, of earth. I'm just suggesting that we put in perspective and proper balance what we are required to do to collect and accumulate them. Because no matter how beautiful or valuable they are, and because we are made in the image of God, we are created to enjoy beauty and to see value. Nevertheless, something better is coming. And when you and I are inordinately focused on getting, on collecting these temporary marshmallows, 
then we don't have the time to give. The time to give away the love of Christ to each other and to our community. So it takes a step of faith for you and for me to believe that what this world offers is only temporary and it's not where we will find our greatest joy and satisfaction. And so that brings us this morning to the third step that you and I've got to take. If we have any hope for implementing our vision of becoming a community in Christ for ourselves and for our culture, and that is that we've got to fix our eyes on this better thing that's coming, on that which is not temporary, but on that which is permanent, that which is better than anything on this earth. God tells us about what is coming so that uh, our minds are intrigued by it, so that our minds are captivated as we think about what lies ahead, so that our hearts are stirred with a longing for it. See, the better thing that was coming stirred up these people of faith at whose lives we've been looking. Look in verse 10. It tells us that the better thing for which they were looking is a city. Verse 14 calls it a homeland. Verse 16 calls it a country. You and I call it heaven. The apostle John was given a vision by God of what heaven was like and the description there, you know it. God used a comparison to, to beautiful, precious stones, jewels, streets of gold, a flowing river, a sea like crystal, beautiful trees that are always bearing fruit. Treasures are found in this place. But ultimately, heaven is the setting for Christ. It's where He will be, along with the Father and the Spirit. And let me tell you, it's never going to get any better than that. Do you believe that? As Proverbs 25 says, it's like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Jesus is the gold. The setting is silver. It's beautiful, but it's only silver. And so the thought of that place and the Christ that they did not yet know or had not yet seen filled them with faith and with emotion. I want us to look at three emotion words. These verses that describe how these people felt about what's coming. Because the emotions they had should be the emotions that you and I have. As we think about what's coming, look in verse 13. It says, all these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So the people never on this earth grasped in their hands what was promised to them. They never took hold of it. But verse 13 says that by faith they saw these things and greeted them from a distance. And that word greet is an emotion word. The basic meaning of it is to embrace. It's what you and I do when we see someone we've been longing to see. We greet them. We embrace them. This is how real 
The promise of God was to these people. They embraced the promise and the reality that the promise represented. And they held it close to them for their entire lives on this earth. The word also carries the connotation of being happy about it. And anticipating it with pleasure. And so I can't help but picture the father here in the story of the the prodigal son. He saw the son. The son was at a great distance. But the father ran to him. And he greeted him. He embraced him. He kissed him. And that's our life here on earth. We see the better thing. It's at a distance. And we spend our life running toward it. We run toward it because we long to embrace it. And we run with joy because what awaits us is so good that we anticipate it with pleasure. See, if your eyes and my eyes aren't fixed on what's ahead, if they aren't always focused on the better thing that's coming, on the Christ who's waiting for us, then our eyes are going to be looking around us everywhere but forward, focusing instead with longing on the marshmallows, the lesser things of the world. And those things will take an inordinate place in your life and my life, and they will suck away an inordinate amount of time and energy and emotion and resources. We've got to fix our eyes on the future. We've got to, with eyes of, folk, of faith, focus on Christ with joy, with happiness, with pleasure and anticipation, because this is a good thing. Do you believe that? Do you? Now, look in verse 14, the second emotion word. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Seeking means this, to have a serious interest in something, to have a serious interest in something, to wish for it, to want it. And so right now it's up to you and to me to define serious interest. What does serious interest look like in your life? Maybe an interest in a hobby, sports, shopping, cooking, eating, the list could go on and on. How do you feel about this serious interest? Does the thought of that serious interest get you up in the morning? Does that serious interest cause you to spend money you might not have? Whatever those emotions are about that serious interest, and whatever commitment that you make to them, our pursuit of the better thing that's coming Must be more. People of faith. It's supposed to be you and me. Are seriously. Genuinely. Sincerely. Thoughtfully. Interested. In all that God has promised to us. That means conversely. That we are not flippant. About the promise of God. About the better thing that's coming. That means we don't take it. Lightly. It means instead that it becomes the most important thing in our lives. Our number one serious 
interest. And you better believe that when this is most important to us, our lives will change. And we will have an impact on our culture. The third emotion word is found in verse 16. Look there. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Desire is the third word. And it means to to stretch one's hand out. And it means to reach for. And it means to yearn for. And desire means, or it looks like you having to come up here and grab me by the waist so that I don't fall out of the pulpit because I, I so long and yearn for what is ahead. What are you desiring? What are you reaching for so passionately that someone might have to come and grab you by the waist to keep you from falling or from hurting yourself? I know this sounds extreme. I know it sounds like a desire that only a few will really have, but it's the desire that all of us should have for the better thing that's coming. Yearning for it. Reaching for it. Living with the right desire. It's going to change our lives and it's going to change our world. And so these are words of emotion. Greeting, seeking, desiring. And emotions are what usually calls you and me to make the decisions that we make in our lives. The yearning that won't wait. The yearning that we must gratify and satisfy. The marshmallow that we have to have. These emotions and the actions they produce. These emotions and the actions they produce belong rightly to God and what He's promised us. Look again at verse 16. What the heroes of faith desired is a better place. And they believed that what God promised was preferable to the world that they were living in. That it was a more prominent place. That it was a place that in comparison to the world ranked higher. Do you believe those same things? That what's coming is far better than what is. John Calvin says, A small spark of light led them to heaven. And when the sun of righteousness shines over us, with what pretext can we excuse ourselves if we still cling to the world? If we have Christ, why cling to the world? Let go. Heaven's a better place. Calvin says, For when they had only tasted of the promises, as though fully satisfied with their sweetness, They despised all that was in the world, and they never forgot the taste of them. Something better is coming. And when we believe that, as the people of the Old Testament believed it, then God is not ashamed to be called our God. Look at verse 16. That's what it says. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. This is just another way of saying That the greeting of God, the embrace of God, awaits us. Can you believe that? Do you believe it about yourself? People of faith are welcomed home by God. He's not ashamed to say, He is mine. 
She is mine. Why? Because you and I honored God by saying, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you have done what you have promised you would do. I believe that out of your love and your compassion, you took on flesh and came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And I believe that you, Lord Jesus, in order to rescue me, to obtain my salvation, you died on the cross. Therefore, not because of who I am, not because how good I am, not because of how perfectly I've obeyed, because I'm not that good and I don't obey that well, but because I believe in you. Because I believe in your goodness and because I believe in the perfect obedience of Christ and in his perfect satisfaction of the debt that my sins owe, because of that, you are not ashamed of me. Because of that, you welcome me without shame into the home that's already prepared for me. Something better is coming. This kind of welcome into the arms of Jesus, this kind of of greeting, his embrace. And so let's do this. Let's live like we believe that. And let's reject the marshmallows of the world, the things that allure and entice and promise fulfillment and the ability to be more satisfying than Jesus is, let's reject them for the promises of God and the better things that he has coming. Christ, Christ, he's coming in all his glory. Let's keep our eyes on him, longing for him, yearning for him, stretching out, reaching out for him, being serious about him, growing in him. That's how we change our lives. And that's how we change our world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you don't leave us in the dark, wondering what's ahead. We thank you that the future isn't in shadows or obscured from us so that we don't know what's going to happen. Thank you that you tell us what awaits us. You're waiting for us, Lord Jesus, to welcome us, to embrace us, to greet us. We can't believe it because we know ourselves, but by faith we know it's true, Lord. And so we thank you for it. I pray that you would help, our live, help us live our lives in light of that truth. Lord, I pray that when we leave here, we'll, we'll look around the world in a different way. Even as we leave here, all the things that we see, the cars we pass, the homes we pass, the restaurants we pass, they'll all seem different to us, Lord, and maybe not as important as they were before we really stop to think about your promises. And I pray that the people of the world, the people that we pass as we leave here will look different to us, Lord, that we would remember that they are eternal, And they're making their way, they're journeying in in one of two directions. Either they are journeying toward you 
through faith in Christ or they've turned away from you and they're journeying toward eternal death and separation from you. So, Lord, no matter how they're dressed, what house they live in, what car they drive, this is the eternal reality. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see that, Lord, so that we would be encouraged and motivated towards it to get them on the path that we're on because the end of the path is you with a welcome, with an embrace. So we thank you for that in Jesus' name.